Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, and welcome to this week's installment of The Wonderful World of Wine, exploring all things wine with you. And we bring you current trends and topics in the wine world. I am Kim Simone, and I am here with my co-host, Mark Lindsay. How are you this week, Mark? All is well, Kim. Good to be talking wine with you again. Absolutely. It feels like we we get together all the time to do this, but we really don't. feel like it's a short time between uh, between our recordings and we always have hopefully some new information to bring to our listeners both uh, both new listeners and those of you who have been following us for quite a long time we're in what are we in our fourth year of doing this radio show slash podcast mark yeah three three and a half years and uh, I'm glad you mentioned that Kim because I wanted to bring up that we of the three official years we were nominated two years for a podcast award and we want to thank the listeners for voting for us and nominating us and we didn't win again this year Kim but we were nominated which is really uh, I was surprised that it really is a feat to be just nominated of all the podcasts out there so I want to thank everybody and thank you Kim for doing this with me and and uh, putting it out here for our listeners and uh, hopefully next year will bring home the the prize, Kim. Well, we get more and more listeners every week, it seems. So here's hoping. <laughs> but it does feel nice to be we'll nominated, try. doesn't it? I want to thank Franklin Radio for allowing us to broadcast every week and create the podcast from the broadcast that we do every week. So it's uh, material we just pass on as a podcast. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, thank you first, to our Kim. listeners and thank you to Franklin Public Radio. So our first article this week that we want to talk to you about. I believe last week we had an article from Australia and this week we have one from New Zealand. And this one is entitled Red Wines, White Lies, the wine rules that we can all be breaking. Uh, it's from News Hub New Zealand. And I like to tell people that I can I can break the rules because I know the rules so well. And so therefore I can just turn around and break them because I know what you can break. But this talks a little bit about some of those pearls of wisdom that maybe have been passed down from generation to generation about wine drinking that maybe aren't really that relevant anymore and that it's a good chance for us to address some of them and say, hey, you know, you can do something a little bit different. You don't have to stick with that red wine with red meat, white with fish kind of hard and fast rules, but with the ways that wine is changing and food is changing and culture is changing, you know, let's uh, change up some of the rules for wine as well. And I think, Kim, that the wine in general gets a bad rap because it has this rules that are out there. You don't hear it for beer. You don't, you don't hear a thing that says you should hold mm-hmm. your beer mug a certain way. or it's <laughs> No not... pinky finger when you're holding yeah, up your, I... your stein of Oktoberfest? I think it scares people away from wine thinking it's, you know, there's these rules you have to do and it's just something it's so easy to enjoy. And we just want to talk about a few of these things that they mentioned in the article that they really can be broken. And and we find ways to change things all the time and let our listeners know Mm -hmm. how to go about. It's not a snobby thing. It's uh, and there are, you know, technically rules, but you don't have to go by. And we try, I think, all the time to (laughs) de-snobify 
<laughs> wine a little bit and make it a little bit more approachable for people. I mean, it is hard when we're in the thick of it and we might use wine terms that are mysterious to people or sound sort of convoluted and maybe their meaning might not be quite so understandable to someone who is a, a novice or a, just an every once in a while wine drinker. But I think a lot of these that we're going to be discussing now are very easy to wrap your brain around. You know, it's not about tasting and putting words to what you're experiencing. You know, it's about how to do it or what to do and how to kind of make it a little bit easier on yourself because you don't have to necessarily stick to these hard and fast rules. And some of these we've spoken about before, and I think other ones are a little newer, just kind of changing with the times. So yeah, do you have a favorite on up. this list, Mark? They're all just good refreshes of things yeah. I think we've hit in the past. The first one I liked, Kim, was the screw cap. Mm -hmm. you, you get this a lot of times people say the screw cap wines are inexpensive wines, cheap wines, because they have a screw cap and they don't have a co-op. So I thought that's one we should kind of refresh the listeners on to update them. That's It does not mean a wine is cheap, that right. it has a screw cap. And there are some industries that have almost 100% completely gone to screw cap, even on their best wines. And New Zealand is one of them. So for a lot of the better wines from New Zealand and most of the wines from Australia, we're really seeing practically everything coming out with a screw cap. That was a concerted decision that all of the winemakers and the winemaking groups in New Zealand came to about 20 years ago. You know, they were like, we are not going to use corks. We are going to use screw caps. I think that a lot of the reason why we have so many screw cap wines these days is because the folks in New Zealand took this stand. And so it almost made it more acceptable for other wines and other producers and other parts of the world to be able to be like, oh, well, if this good wine from New Zealand is under a screw cap, maybe it's broken the stigma a little bit about having a screw cap wine. So kudos to New Zealand for taking that stand and allowing us to have so many nicer bottles of wine with a screw cap. If anyone's ever shopped for New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, that's all you see is screw cap. I can't even think of the last time I've had a New Zealand wine. I don't think I've ever had a New Zealand wine that had a cork in it. No, Thinking not, way back, not in so. a really long time. Yeah. So reds, whites, whatever, they're all screw cap. And we said before, Kim, a couple of points on the screw cap is each wine has like a fill level. And when you get a screw cap, it's filled right to the top. So to me, I always tell customers and students that it's the best value there is in wine to buy a screw cap because you're getting at least that half ounce more than any other bottle because it's filled right to the top without the cork. You know, the cork's not taking up the space. I like and that you also, always take that stand on it. That it's like, hey, yeah. you get like a half an ounce more wine in your bottle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Plus, if you're looking for bring a gift to someone's house or a housewarming gift and you're going to serve it that night, I would bring a screw cap wine because you're guaranteed it's going to be good. Mm -hmm. You know, not good quality maybe, but not corked because there's no cork in it to infect the wine with any bacteria. So you're safe if you get a screw cap wine. And what I like about of them too. embarrassment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It saves you from, you know, the, is this bottle going to show how it's supposed to show? Right. And that is actually one of my favorite things about the screw caps is that a lot of the times are meant for wines that don't need any more aging. They're bottled, they're released. You can sit on them for a little while usually, but most of them really are meant for pretty immediate drinking. So I feel like you get a more consistent wine 
that is supposed to be young and fresh. And if you like that style, then it's a good indicator. I think when you see a bottle with a screw cap that, hey, you know, this is something that I'm going to enjoy tonight. And, you know, it's not going to necessarily need to sit around for five years. Now, some people want that experience. You know, they want the I want to lay this bottle down for five years because they appreciate and they look forward to the changes in flavor of a wine. But if you're not one of those people, and I feel like I'm one of the few people who are big wine geeky people who actually prefer younger, <laughs> you know, younger, fresher kinds, kinds of styles of wine, but I look for that. So I think that can be a real benefit too. Also, when you put the screw cap back on, you can lay it down in the fridge and it won't leak. There you go. There you go. That's a tip. I find myself lately going to my wine rack and I'm looking, I'm saying, oh, oh it's a screw cap. I automatically think that I should have had that a long time ago type of thing mm. lately, you know, where before I would just, I wouldn't even consider that, think that way. But yeah, now I tend to pay more attention to what's on the rack. That leads into one of the other points in this article was that the, the misconception that older wines are superior. And I think that it can be true in some cases that some older wines developed to a point that, yes, they might be better at 5, 10, 15 years old than they were when they were brand spanking new, but it's not necessarily the case anymore with a lot of wines or most wines. Most wines really are released at the time when they should be consumed. So, you know, especially for anything under like $20, $25. So if you have something that is in that price range, don't feel the need that you have to sit on it. There's lots and lots of good stuff out there that is made well, doesn't need to be aged, and is great right when you get it home from the store. Yeah, we always give out those weird stats, Kim, that like, you know, 90% of the wines that are purchased are consumed within two hours. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's crazy how much is made to be consumed young and right away. So uh, the percentage of people that are, I would not say into, but liking aged wines is really pretty low, I feel, or, mm -hmm. or because everyone does consume them so young. But it doesn't mean aged wines are any better than the stuff that's made to be consumed. Right. Quick. And also, you know, you kind of run up into the problem that a lot of the wines that are meant for aging tend to be on the more expensive side. So if you are someone who likes that, doing a little research on which wines are going to age better and then having the appropriate place to age them and for how long and when should you open them. I think being involved in it in that way is part of the allure of wine for some people. Like any other hobby, there are these little nuanced things about it that people get really, really excited about. And I think that there are many people who are fine wine lovers who that is part of it for them. You know, that is part of the fun. That is part of the excitement is laying down, you know, six bottles of something and then trying it every two or three years and seeing how it's changed. It's entertainment, honestly. Uh, but for, I think, many, many wine drinkers who just want a glass of wine because it's, it's tasty and it goes with your chicken parmesan, that's not part of the experience for you because everybody's different and many, many different, I think, groups of wine drinkers uh, that, that we talk to and that all have kind of different perspectives on what they want to get out of wine. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can listen to us every week on Franklin Radio, WFPR 102.9 FM, 
Our past episodes can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Kim, you can find her now on CommonwealthWineSchool.com. For more information about myself, please go to FranklinLickers.com. If you have any questions or comments on our show, please find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, we have a article that was in Wine Enthusiast Magazine, Five Popular Grapes with Different Names. And Kim and I were discussing how this is one of probably the more popular questions we get when we do wine education is that why is a grape called this and called that? Or why is it called this here and and called something different here? But they're really the same thing. So we Mm -hmm. wanted to talk to our listeners about this, Kim, and give them a little update on popular grapes with different names. And I think this is always a good one to come back to from time to time to time, because it does clear up some confusion. And even in you know the wine classes that I teach or that I sit in on at the Commonwealth Wine School, we do get those questions of Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio. Is that the same thing? Shiraz, Syrah. There always are these questions about these, these grape names and kind of fun to get into a conversation about, well, yes, it's the same grape. It's a slightly different word used for the name. But then let's talk about why there might be more than one name <laughs> for a particular grape variety. And you know, does it impact the flavor, the style? Is it just the country that it comes from? So it's more than just, oh, there are multiple words to use for this particular grape. Yeah. And, and I, I, love, never, I love getting geeky about grapes. You know that. Speaking of geeky, I mean, I've never really had an appreciation for this type of the different, you know, the different names until I started studying more Italian wine and then breaking down how each region calls the same grape something different. And it, we could do a just, whole show just on Italian grapes and the different names. Yeah. We're just going to so concentrate on some of the you, biggies here, but yeah. I right. Mean, we I could. mean, that, that's kind of my point I want to make to the <laughs> listeners is that we're going to go through some real, the basic ones everyone really brings up. But if you want to get really geeky, you can go to you know these other countries where they just get crazy. And we'll mention a few Italian ones when we when we talk about these as we go along. So You definitely well, should throw in some of the Italian ones. Absolutely. Which ones do you want to talk about first? You mentioned Pinot Grigio. Pinot Grigio and Pinot Gris. Yeah, I think I think that's the first like that is the that's the biggie. Like if you were to say, what is the one grape that people get confused because they have the same grape has two different names? It's Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio. And yes, they are the same. But what has happened really is that winemakers in different countries have sort of grabbed on to the idea of if you use Grigio, you're going to want to make this particular style versus if you use Gris, the word, not the grape, you're going to maybe want to make this style. So I think that that has become a distinction for a lot of winemakers when they determine what word they're going to use on their wine labels. So Pinot Grigio, Grigio, that's Italian, for, and they both mean gray, and Pinot Gris is French, but it has really come along that anyone who is making this wine and calling it Pinot Grigio is making it more in that Northern Italian style, you know, crisp, light, kind of mild in flavor, good with food, like seafood and lighter things, refreshing and fairly simple, although there are a lot that have some nice complexity to them. Whereas Pinot Gris is found usually and almost exclusively under that name, in Alsace and it makes Alsace in Northern France. And it, it makes these kind of 
richer, more peachy, kind of apricot-y, still dry usually, but a whole different animal. So if you see a Pinot Gris from, say, Australia or Oregon, you're not going to get something that's going to remind you of Santa Margarita Pinot Grigio because the Gris just have kind of more of that richness and lushness to them that the Pinot Grigios just often don't. I like how you said simple for Pinot Grigio, Kim, and I like you to define that a little bit more, but you're saying... It's not always easy, true. <laughs> easy drinking, very just light, almost no flavor yeah. at sometimes. You know, I mean, it's light, just you know, a wet lemony, apple not too tart, still dry. But I guess I hesitate to put the word simple to it because there are some, especially from the Alto Adige region of Italy, that have really nice complexity to them. They're in no way simple wines, but I don't feel like they have the textural element that you associate with a Pinot Gris. So maybe we'll leave it at Pinot Grigio is easier to drink and maybe a little uh, lighter bodied, whereas Pinot Gris tend to have a richer, fuller feel in your mouth when you're drinking it. At some point I was asked once about, can't you just say Pinot Grigio is a cooler climate grape versus Pinot Gris? But then you mentioned Alsace, which, you know, it's really kind of a cool area. So you can't really put a climate to the differences because a lot of Pinot Gris is also in hot regions like, or well, Oregon's not necessarily totally hot, but Australia for Pinot Gris. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's hard to put climate zones to these. But, but I think, and I think too, it's a great variety that kind of likes cooler climate. I think when you start to get too warm, it loses its freshness and is just sort of fat and flabby. So I, I, you know, I think someplace like Alsace is almost the most amount of sunshine you want to give it because especially these days where we have warmer temperatures and slightly longer growing seasons, we've gotten to the point where the richness is almost off the charts and kind of different than we're used to. But the fact that so many nice examples come from those northern like alpine foothills of Italy uh, really shows what a, a lovely, cool climate grape Pinot Grigio really is. Do you find people who drink Pinot Grigio do not like Pinot Gris style, the style? I think so. I see that a lot in retail, Kim, where yeah. people, I put them all together, right? There's Pinot Gris with Pinot Grigios sure. and people just, you know, totally don't gravitate towards Pinot Gris if they're a Pinot Grigio drinker, yeah. vice versa, I see, because it's there is a different style. I, I feel Pinot Gris has more fruit to it, mm-hmm. more pronounced apple fruit to me than Pinot Grigio, which I find much lighter. So maybe yeah. more acidic. I lump the um, Pinot Gris drinkers in with the unoaked Chardonnay drinkers. Yeah, that's because of that richness. You want to take away the oak and you want to have just the the rich fruit and a nice, pretty much as full bodied of a white wine as you can get without having an oaky white something that you can put with. I mean, if you're someone who likes to eat meat, but you also only like to drink white wine, those are the white wines that you want to be having with like swordfish or a tuna steak or beef tenderloin. Like, (laughs) you know, we struggle all the time with like, oh, white wines to go with red meat and heavier foods. Those are the wines to go with those foods because they're rich and they have length and body and all these wonderful things that really make them a great companion to a meal. Let's talk about the Reds, Kim, popular grapes with different names. Which one do you want to start with on the Reds? Ooh, I chose Pinot Gris. I think you have to choose the Red. Well, 
I think you know, Syrah and Shiraz, I mm-hmm. think, have always gone way back ever since uh, Yellowtail Shiraz <laughs> has been around. And then you try Leave to, it to the Aussies. <laughs> yeah, Australian has definitely cornered Shiraz. And yep. Syrah is usually French in, in U.S., California would use that. And once again, you're talking different styles. The French is t- typically maybe a little bit more spice. Spice. Yeah. That black pepper spice. Absolutely. But I I think this is the almost the red wine equivalent of the Pinot Gris, Pinot Grigio conundrum. These two go hand in hand. It's like, ah, you know, it kind of follows the same rules where Syrah generally tends to be used for maybe slightly cooler climate, more spicy, less primary fruit, more tannin. And then winemakers in the US or South America, whatever can, you know, choose which word they want to associate with their wine. And yeah, has room to redefine what this wine, what this grape is all about when they created Shiraz and really put their own unique stamp on, hey, this is what we can do with this grape variety. And it's big and bold and lush and jammy and fruity and wicked high in alcohol because it's really warm down there in Australia. And, you know, if you were to have two glasses, you know, one of something from the Northern Rhone and then another of something from Australia, it's sometimes it's hard to believe that those are the same grape variety because they can be so very different depending on the differences that climate has on in the impact on the final style of the wine. And unlike Pinot Grigio, Pinot Gris, Syrah and Shiraz have gone the opposite as far as popularity, as far as I can tell lately, Kim, it's really Mm -hmm. kind of dropped off the trending in the wine world for me. So that's another big difference between those. Yeah, I'm sort of more seeing them nowadays in blends um, or we we tend to use- California style. It's in bl- in blends in blends more, in California. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we t- we tend to use this grape variety in ways that we're trying to showcase classic styles. You know, this is the classic style of the Northern Rhone. This is the classic style of Australia. But for everyday drinking, I'm really not seeing that it is anywhere near as popular as it used to be. You know, this used to be the go-to inexpensive, everyday, bring a case of wine to a party kind of a wine. And it just isn't there anymore. Well, let's talk, working an Italian thing here, Kim. Zinfandel, the same as Primitivo. Primitivo is Italian for Zinfandel. It is grown in Puglia. 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 There you go. Puglia. Puglia. No G. That's good. I should have known that from my uh, Food Network. (laughs) Got that. (laughs) Very good. So very hot area in uh, Southern Italy. And Zinfandel from California, we've talked about so many times, but mm-hmm. they, they are very high alcohol, both of them, because it's the hot climate, they get uh, more sugar, leads to more alcohol, but it is the same grape. Is that, I mean, I feel like this goes back and forth. Like the research, the they genetic- They always say relatives of- so Yeah, I, the I genetic research on Genetically, this seems to go back and forth. I feel like oh, for the last 25 years, it's like- the chicken or the egg. <laughs> like it's, yeah, yeah. It is the same. It's not the same. It is the same. No, it's a parent. No, it's a sibling. No, it's a cousin. It's like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, apparently the, the most say, recent research is that it same. is the same. So yeah, we're going to stick with that for now. Next, we want to talk about Pinot Noir, Kim. Why don't you tell our listeners Pinot oh, Noir yeah. so the same as? This is cool because I would say that this is a name for Pinot Noir that has not really been on people's radar except for fairly recently. It is 
the German translation of Pinot Noir. They call it Spottburgunder in Germany. So we have Pinot Noir is the French. Uh, sometimes in Northern Italy, you'll see it called Pinot Nero, even in Sicily. So in Italy, when they grow Pinot Noir, they call it Pinot Nero. But then there's this word Spottburgunder, which, you know, <laughs> has neither a Noir nor a Pinot in there. And it is the same grape variety. And we are finding better and better wines from Germany coming out that are red. It used to be almost a completely wine white dominated at least export market. And we would never, ever see any red wines from Germany. But in the last 10 years, dozen years, definitely seen more reds coming out of Germany and better reds coming out of Germany. So if you see the word Spottburgunder on tall, often they're in tall flutes, those regular traditional German wine bottles, but it's a red wine, it'll be a Pinot Noir. And they tend to be more like Burgundies, somewhat similar to Oregon Pinot Noirs, not are big, lush California Pinot Noirs, but things that are a little bit leaner, you know, maybe a little bit more herbal, maybe more mushroomy, but they're lovely. They're light. They're perfumey. I really, really like them a lot. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of color. have for years. They're, they're beautiful wines. Yeah. Very light in color. You can see through these. Very things, light in color. You know, That's a really good point. Compare. The German ones are, are way lighter than you would expect. And I'm glad you mentioned in Burgundy, France, Kim, because that's probably one of the most common questions I get. Someone will come into retail and say, I need a Burgundy for cooking. And I'll bring them over <laughs> and show them an inexpensive Pinot Noir. And they're like, no, I need a Burgundy for cooking. I go, I can sell you a $50 French Burgundy, or you can get a California Pinot Noir for 10 bucks and get the same thing. I suggest the California Pinot Noir for $10. But- and that's when you have to do the whole big explanation of Burgundy, right? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I'm surprised they didn't kind of bundle that in with this, but it's a region versus a grape. So I understand. And you mentioned Pinot Nero from Italy, Lombardy. This is my go-to lately. I've been drinking a ton of Italian Pinot Noir, a Pinot Nero, which is just phenomenal value. If you think of some of the finest sparkling wines from Italy are made with Pinot Nero and they're using the same grapes and they're still wine. And it is just great values. I have probably five, six, $10 Pinot Nero I keep from Italy on my shelves that are just blow away anything from California in the $20 range. Cool. I know where I'm coming shopping for my, my Thanksgiving it's, wines. It's a great value. <laughs> Wonderful. The last, Kim, the last red we got to talk about, Mavedra and Monastral. And Mataro. Mataro. Yeah. Don't forget Mataro. I've always wanted to name a black dog Mataro. I've I think never, that would be great. I, I can't even remember last time I've seen... Mataro. Mataro. I, you know, this article does make mention that you do see it on California labels. And I think that might be the last time I saw Mataro on a label, but they mention it for Australia as well. I've never seen, I've never seen Australian. No, I don't think I have either. When I see it in a blend, they usually use the term Mavedra. But yeah, I think the big thing about this grape variety is that it's not usually bottled as a single varietal wine, unless you're in certain parts of Spain that will bottle single varietal Monastrell. But usually it's a blending grape. So you'll see it as a blending grape in Italy. You almost always see it as a blending grape in the south of France, whether you're in Provence or the Rhone Valley or Languedoc, Roussillon. This is another one that likes a little bit of heat. So when we have those southern regions of France and some of those 
regions of Italy and Spain that get nice and warm. This is a, a great, wonderful grape variety that really just likes the Mediterranean coast. You know, it's hugs the coastline and we get a lot of great wines um, from those Mediterranean regions made from this grape variety. I always tend to get a lot of earthiness in mm-hmm. this grape. So I think that's why I what I like about it. And it can be really dark Good food too. wine. Yeah. Great food wine can be made very, very dry. It's got some berry notes to it, some cherry. I think every once in a while I get a little like blueberry out of it. Yeah, Um, I can see that. And then that typical sort of spicy note that we seem to get from a lot of these great varieties that we get in these Southern European areas, you know, the black pepper, licorice, some of them come across, there's a term that they call garrigue, which is like thyme and lavender and, you know, those kind of herbal notes, which I really like a lot. So a lot of those sort of flavors and aromas in these wines. Thank you for listening to the wonderful world of wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. That's where you can leave us your questions and comments. And we'd love to answer your questions on the air. So if you have a, a burning question about wine, please leave it for us there. And you can find our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. Cheers. Wine, wine.